Paul Breckenridge in for Shig Adam on the Chorus Radio Network. We will talk more about Afghanistan coming up after 10.30. Terry Glavin, very much an authoritative voice on the subject, is going to join us after 10.30. And it's quite a contrast yesterday. And the Prime Minister and his Sunday best uh, taking the stroll, nice, peaceful, leisurely stroll with his family uh, to Rideau Hall to meet with the Governor General. And the chaos we saw uh, yesterday in Kabul, in particular at the airport, and, and just some crazy scenes again today. Uh, it's obviously a mess in Afghanistan. It's not something you can put at the feet of this prime minister, obviously. Uh, but, but certainly, I, I think there's some valid criticism in terms of how we've handled the evacuation uh, of Afghan translators, those who worked with uh, Canadian forces and are very much in danger at the moment. That, that has not gone well. But it speaks to, uh, you know, I think the, the unpredictability of the moment. What's going to happen between now and September 20th? I mean, it's it's really hard to say. So as much as the liberals have aspirations going into this uh, vote to convert the minority government into a majority, nothing is guaranteed. And elections can take on a life of their own. And we are in a certainly a period of, of volatility, as we've seen globally. Well, joining us for some thoughts on where things stand as we look ahead to September 20th and why we're having this election in the first place. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Matt Gurney. He's a columnist uh, with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Matt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks to be here. Uh, well, sorry, that was almost English. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> Can you tell I've been watching too much coverage already? Yeah, I think so. I think it's we're only a day in, and we're already starting to feel it. Um, is you know, he had an interesting piece today, as a matter of fact, uh, up at the the line, uh, the line dot And he raised an interesting point, right? I mean, here we are. It's you know the middle of August. We're we're in the dog days of summer. September twentieth, right? We're we're you know, kids are back in school. Folks are back at uh, universities, back in office towers. Things are going to be a lot different than than they are right now, aren't they? Yeah, and you know what? I want to I want to answer that question weirdly, and I, I want uh, for your listeners right now. You might think this is me bragging, and I want you to know you're absolutely right. I'm totally bragging about this. You want to know like the smartest thing I ever ended up saying, and it was a total accident. So early, early, early 2020, like right after New Year's, first week back after Christmas vacation. I was doing a, a, a luncheon at a uh, at one of the the I think it was the it was the Canadian Club I think it was in Toronto. And it was a, a panel of guys, and we were talking about what we expected to come up in the new year. And the host surprised me with a question. I hadn't been on uh, the list, and I was asked, "What do you worry about? What what is something that you worry about?" Because mostly we were talking about opportunities, good investments, political trends, and what I said was that I worry that life is moving faster than we as either a government or as a society can keep up with and that it takes us weeks or months to respond to crises that can develop in hours or days and this was before the pandemic right. like this is like the pandemic really started to pop up on the news only a few weeks later and as I said in the piece I wrote at the line here, we are a year and a half into the pandemic, in, in North America at least, and in Canada, we are still struggling with basic stuff. Rapid testing, contact tracing, effective border controls, some kind of vaccine passport for international travel, 
These are all things the need for was obvious a long time ago, and we react really slowly. A year and a half is not enough time for us to react. The liberals, as you said, September 20th, next month, the liberals decided they needed an election now. I agree with them. Strategically, I understand why they're doing this. It, if, you're, if you're Justin Trudeau, now is the right time for an election because it's only going to get harder for him going forward. You can say he's cynical. You can say he's opportunistic, but he's right. Like from his selfish political interests, he has made a good decision. And what we are looking at now is the fact that he's basically got a hope, hit the knees in prayer, that nothing goes badly wrong in the last 35 days because, you know, in the, sorry, in the next 35 days, because believe me, man, 35 days before we shut this country down last year, most of us were still thinking the COVID was going to stay contained in China. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, look, even 35 days ago, I, I think we had a different view of things. I think as, as we got in into June and, and the vaccines started flowing and things were really looking promising, I, I think, you know, people were starting to think, look, September, October, November, we're going to be done with this. We're going to be out of this, this pandemic. And, you know, clearly that's not the case. Look, I mean, you know, the government can certainly take credit for where things stand on the vaccination front, at least in terms of what we have in, uh, as supply goes. But... In terms of trying to predict a, a trajectory here, in terms of you know this fourth wave or what the Delta variants uh, still got to throw at us, there's a lot of unpredictability there. With hindsight already, well, already we're on day two. I think we could say safely, and we're not saying this is partisans. We're just saying this is political observers. The election speculation has been at a fever pitch since last month. And I can tell you that, Rob, because I took a vacation the first week of August. And when I took that first week of August off, one of the things I joked about when I signed off my own radio show was, let's see if the election is on by the time I'm back. So by the end of July, an election was imminent. We all knew it was imminent. And with the benefit of hindsight, I bet you the liberals wish they had gone then. Because two weeks ago, as you said, 35 days ago, two weeks ago, we were in a better position on the pandemic. Afghanistan had not collapsed into chaos. I heard in your promo that you're having our buddy Terry Glavin come on, which is great. He's amazing on this stuff. We are in a worse place geopolitically and domestically than we were two or three weeks ago. And I bet you if he could mulligan this, Justin Trudeau would have pulled the trigger on this thing two or three weeks ago. But he can't. The situation has already gotten worse in that time. And I guess the question, and I don't know, I can't see the future, does it keep getting worse or does it begin to plateau and give him a time to actually have the campaign he wants? Who knows? We'll find out. We will. And, you know, you, you touched on Afghanistan in your piece. And I mean, I don't know that it's it's something the Canadians are going to go to the polls thinking about. I don't know if Afghanistan's an election issue. I don't think you can blame the prime minister. I don't think you can blame Canada uh, for the situation there. I think more narrowly, the government's done uh, a fairly lousy job, I would argue, in, in terms of evacuating folks from Afghanistan and making sure that those who help Canadian forces have an opportunity for you know a safe and secure life here in Canada. How much of this you know, is an issue. Now, how much is Afghanistan going to cast a, a shadow on, on this election, if, if at all? That's a great question. Um, and I'm going to give you a, a totally lousy answer. I don't know. And 
<clears throat> I was just talking with uh, my friend Sapria Devetti uh, about this a few minutes ago. I'm going to borrow some of her insights here. I'm being honest with you. If this were a generic foreign policy issue, I would tell you it doesn't matter at all. And that's because Canadians are really, really good at ignoring stuff that happens in other parts of the world. We talk a good game, uh, but we, we don't mean it. We're, we're, we're full of it. Uh, Canadians vote entirely local, domestic, pocketbook issues, and we always have. We don't think of ourselves that way, but the proof's in the voting. And we, like, th- these are not foreign policy issues that normally move Canadian elections. There are two wild cards this time, though. One of them is the fact that members of the media, and as I say in my column, it's not broad, but it's deep. Certain members of the Canadian media spent a lot of time in Afghanistan during the war, got to know Afghans, got to know some of the Afghans in particular who worked with us, and they're friends, and they love these people, and they love their families, and they are not going to get distracted by the campaign issue du jour when their friends are living in fear of their lives, and we're not getting them out. So normally I would say the Canadian media would move on. It won't this time. As long as that airport stays open and as long as we get these horrifying images of people falling to their death because they're clinging to the side of evacuating planes, this will remain a live issue in this election. The other issue is that Afghanistan is not just some other random foreign country. We fought in Afghanistan for years. We shed blood there. Our veterans today, many of them are still suffering. Canadians are more invested in Afghanistan emotionally than almost any other country. This is not going to be as easy for the Liberals to move beyond as generic country X geopolitical crisis. Is it going to swing the election? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think so. But I think it is a drag on the Liberal campaign that they were not going to count on. In terms of uh, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, and, and it was an interesting uh, first 24 hours for him and some, some flip, I don't know if you want to call it flip-flopping, some indecisiveness on, on the issue of a, a federal vaccine mandate. Look, Aaron O'Toole ran a, a really incredible leadership campaign and, and kind of you know blew Peter McKay uh, out of the water, but he's been, I think, underwhelming since then. What, what's your sense of his capabilities as leader and, and uh, what kind of a factor he's going to be in this campaign? I'm going to give you a really brutal assessment, and all my conservative friends out there, plug your ears and hum loudly because you're not going to like this. Aaron O'Toole, I think, is a more effective leader than the conservative party party can make use of right now. I think the problems we're going to see in the conservative campaign are not Aaron O'Toole's fault. I think we can blame him for not dealing with some of them more effectively. But I think the conservative party is really weirdly divided along factional lines right now, whether or not it's political or geographic or loyalties to uh, personalities within the party. And I think a huge part of Aaron O'Toole's effort is absorbed just dealing with internal stuff, and he can't put together a united front to take on the liberals. You mentioned the the rough start to his campaign. I'm not going to pull punches. The conservative campaign started badly. It was not good. Aaron O'Toole didn't look good. He looked as uncomfortable talking about vaccine passports as Andrew Scheer used to look talking about gay marriage. This was an obvious issue. The conservatives should have seen it coming. I am given to understand, I'll be vague, but, you know, sources, 
I'm given to understand that there wasn't a lot of doubt within the Conservative Party that they were going to get hammered on vaccines. They had early warning about this. They had days to come up with a plan. The Liberals sprung the vaccine mandate announcement on Friday night. Aaron O'Toole gave his campaign remarks Sunday morning. They had 36 hours and he stood there smiling awkwardly, avoiding direct answers to really simple, clear questions. And that reflects not anything about Aaron O'Toole's intelligence. It reflects the fact that the Conservative Party could not come up with a position. They figured it out. I think their new position, uh, they came up with it last night and announced it late. I think it's a perfectly defensible, solid position. But they've now humiliated themselves by having three public positions on one of the most important campaign issues in 48 hours. It is embarrassing. It is amateur hour. They need to do better. It's good that they figured this out in hours. Andrew Shearer would have taken weeks to figure this out. So, hey, at least that's some sign of progress. (laughs) But it was not a good start for the campaign. We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more at NationalPost.com. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here. My pleasure. Take care. You as well. There you go. Matt Gurney, columnist with the National Post, nationalpost.com, and he's got an interesting piece as well. Up at The Line, uh, Jen Gerson's uh, outfit, uh, theline.substack.com, uh, a good read from Matt on some of the issues in, in this campaign, some of the unpredictability going into this campaign.